Weirdo Bookworms, unite. We want to share our love of genre fiction with you. Some readers out there may look down on you for your love of horror, sci-fi, and fantasy, but not us. So stop by as we discuss what we've been reading. Hi, genre junkies. Welcome back to another episode. And it happens to be my most favorite genre, horror. It is, of course, horror again this week. Yay! So tonight we're going to be discussing Little Heaven by national best-selling author Nick Cutter, who many of us know and love. This is a repeat author to the show. Mm -hmm. Uh, We formally reviewed his book, The Troop, and were forever scarred now that was on both of our top 10 lists of the year that was that was well top. yeah that that was on both that was on both of our lists yeah yeah top five well top 10 combined yeah and yes because my particular thing is we have compared so many books to that book since reading it yeah there was really no choice but to put that as a most memorable yeah no definitely it was a touchstone of last year um, so before we get started talking about this, anything you want to share with the group, Scott? Any cool media in genre you have consumed? Cool media or genre I've consumed? Cool media in genre. In genre. No. Um. I mean, I've been reading a lot of books recently, but all <laughs> of them are going to be featured on the show. So I don't want to get too deep in it, but I, I, let's just say I've gotten way ahead on my reading. That's fantastic. We still need to get you reading some more short stories, though. Keep up on your goals. Actually, I'm looking at a short story right now on the table in front of me that I'm really looking forward to reading. So um, I'll probably be talking about that on a on a future episode. Ooh. But uh, you just read a book yourself. Yes, I did. Well, I'm, I'm always reading, right? And I've got books I do from my book club and other little things that catch my eye that don't make it to the show. Uh, but I read something by a wonderful author, kind of local to us, named Matthew V. Brockmeyer. And that book is called Kind Nepenthe. I hope I'm saying that right. I didn't look up how to say it. It's from a it's from Poe, actually. It looks right to me from here. Yeah. Um N-E-P-E-N-T-H-E. <laughs> kind Nepenthe. <laughs> um, so this book is set in far north California's Emerald Triangle, which is in kind of the back hills of Humboldt County, where very famously it's called the Emerald Triangle because it's a huge pot market. Like That's where, where all grow. the weed comes from. Yeah, that's basically where all the weed comes from. And, you know, this is a very recently written book, 2017. And, you know, now we have like basically legal pot in California. So it is kind of interesting. This is kind of taking place at the crux of these like kind of the grower community being like, where's this going? What's going to happen to us? Because I don't really know like what's going on with the <laughs> Emerald Triangle these days now that so many people can buy weed without a prescription. I know a lot of them did not want weed, weed to become legal in California. Yeah. So um, Matthew was kind enough to sign this book for me too. And this was a very beautiful little horror book. And I say little because it's less than 300 pages. It is country noir. It's kind of like a Southern Gothic. 
that's kind of the mood I want to set for you with this. Only, obviously, it's not set in the southern states of America. It's set in very northern California. Which, northern California actually really does have a lot of uh, similarities to southern farming towns. Yeah. And it, I know it's hard if you don't live here. Like, you don't quite get what we're saying because we live in northern California. But this is still a ways up from us. But it's like, it's close enough that like, yeah, we know people who's from there. We know people who went to school there. We know people that have moved there. I go fishing up there. Yeah, exactly. But it's not quite like in our yard. So anyway, um, Matthew wrote this book and it's, oh my gosh, you guys, this is beautiful writing. His words are stunning. He writes contemporary so real and so eloquently. And it's haunting. It's just a haunting book about a few people that kind of come together in this kind of pot industry in very weird way. And of course, there's some scariness to it. And there's a lot of disturbing stuff to it. He had told me, um, as I've talked to him a little bit on social media, that people thought this book was disgusting. And I was like, oh, well, then send it my way. <laughs> because I, I like I, I get it. Like there's stuff that talks that goes on in this book that is really disturbing and going to really upset a lot of people. Um, you know, it's about this hippie named Rebecca. She's got a little girl. Uh, her and her boyfriend move up there to kind of oversee this grow operation. And then we've got their boss who owns the property, who's a really damaged, lost soul. Then we have their nearest neighbors, uh, Diesel Dan. That's, uh, you know, he's like this big time meth dealer, but like he doesn't want to admit that he's a meth dealer and he's a gun nut. He has this you know, wasteoid of a son who's just knocked up a girl. And so it's all about what's going on in their lives. And there's something going on behind the scenes in a horror, I, I will say it's supernatural way. That's kind of a thread that's tying all these characters together. And like I said, I he is just an absolutely beautiful writer. And this is something that I think a lot of people who are into literary fiction, uh, contemporary fiction, could really get into as kind of introducing them to horror, because I think they're going to really like how he makes his characters, how he talks about their very bizarre slice of life stories. And I also learned a lot about drugs. <laughs> Um, I know very little about the propagation of marijuana, and I learned a lot. Like, I feel like I could do it. <laughs> like, I feel like I could get some plants and some lights and, like, make this happen. Career uh, change. <laughs> you know, it's not in the in the stars at this point. And also some about meth and some other drugs, you know, that really, like, they poison people and they poison communities and, you know, some about how... Pot seems like this really easy thing, and it is. It's, you know, I don't condone anybody that uses it, but there's a whole other side to this industry that's not just peace, love, and freedom. And it's very eye opening to think about that. It sounds to me like you're saying it doesn't really um, celebrate the drug industry, but doesn't 
demonize it either. No, and it definitely doesn't judge the people that use the drugs, especially marijuana, because I mean, anybody, uh, come on. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's pot. I it's mean, fine. Big deal. And I'm fine with it being legal and people using it for health or recreation or whatever you need to do to get through life. But, you know, it's kind of like this secret other side to like the renegade pot industry that makes you think like where did this product come from who grew this what was going on in their lives you know did it come from people like this who are just consumed with drugs and violence and are just broken so my hats off to matthew v brockmeyer a damn good story a cracking good story sir it's always it's always fun when we get to squeeze a book in here or there that's not officially on the show, but but we can, we is kinda, relevant and, and good. Yeah, we can kind of tell people like you know this is something we read that you should read, and you know he's an independent type of guy. I mean he he did you know this is published and you can buy it places. I'm sure you can definitely buy it on Amazon, but um look him up online. Check this book out, Matthew V. Brockmeyer, and challenge yourself to read something a little different. That's all. So I'm really jumping in my seat to talk about Little Heaven with you. I know. Because you've, I mean, Sandra has been so excited to talk about it and so afraid of what my particular opinion is. Ugh. I already know what all of your scores are going to be because Sandra's yeah. been dancing around the the room for the past week about this, this is, book. Um, this was like kind of a reread for me because I had started this book and I'd gotten halfway and then we had other deadlines to accomplish. And so I had to put it down, which was excruciating. And so then I actually started back from the beginning and read it all again. And this is a book I I'm going to reread again in my life. Spoiler alert. <laughs> But I should tell you about it. So so what was your experience with the book? Well, I got to tell the synopsis. Oh, you're right. Yeah, to do it. <laughs> Hit it. <laughs> okay. So this is Little Heaven, a novel by Nick Cutter. A trio of mismatched mercenaries, Micah Chagru, Minerva Atwater, and Ebenezer Elkins, colloquially known as the Englishman, is hired by young Ellen Dullhaven for a deceptively simple task. Check in on her nephew, who may have been taken against his will to a remote New York backwoods settlement called Little Heaven, where a clandestine religious cult holds sway. But shortly after they arrive, things begin to turn ominous. There are stirrings in the woods, and over the treetops, and above all else, the brooding shape of a monolith known as Black Rock casts its terrible pall. Yeah, I didn't read the book jacket again you on this one before. Do. That's, we, I, yeah. I do sometimes. This one I didn't. And I mean, come on. There's cults. Yeah. There's assassins. Yep. There's ominous creatures. Yes. Yeah. No, it it's um you know, it's one of those books where I read it and I'm like, oh, how nice of Nick Cutter write this book for me. Like just for you specifically for yeah. you. And it's even um historical as it takes place in the sixties and eighties. So yeah, it checked a lot of boxes for me. I mean, let's just can I start? Yes. I, okay. I, yeah. I don't want to be gushy and gross and just like, oh my God, I love this book. But um, 
But oh my God, you love this book. Yeah, this is one of those books where I can't really find fault with it. I'm going to be honest with you guys. It is hard for me to, in the best critical way, pick this apart and be like, oh, well, I could have used less of that. Mm, I could have used more. No, like there's nothing I would change about this book, um, including the absolutely incredible illustrations. There's not tons of illustrations, but there are a few and they're striking. Yeah, I'll just say it. They're perfectly placed in the book. There's probably only about 10 or 12 illustrations in the whole book. Yeah. But they're in there when they're needed. And that's um, Adam Gorman or Gorham. Adam Gorham? Adam G-O-R-H-A-M illustrated this book. All right, I'm efforting this because before I look this up, because I'm, I'm, I'm looking it up right now. Yeah. His art reminds me a lot of The Walking Dead. Yes. And I want to know if he has been involved in that at all. Um, he is an independent comic book artist. Oh, so maybe. And his work is dope. <laughs> okay, well, let's let's bring it back to the novel. So... You know, Nick Cutter is one of my favorite authors now. And he's, you know, he's becoming, he is, he's instant buy. Um, still have a book or two in the back catalog to get through. But, you know, when you start to really know an author and love an author, you can pick up on their style a lot. You know, it's them from the way they speak, the way they write. They have a language. However, there is nothing about this book that's like, oh, that is just so the troop, which is, of course, you know, our touchstone book like we talked about. I mean, it is because it's him, but at the same time, it's so original. It's It's got his signature style. It's got his signature fantastic use of gore and some really disgusting, brutal horror stuff and just icky. But at the same time, it's just eloquent and it's beautiful. And he writes characters that you connect with and you care about. You know, this reminded me of Larry McMurtry, some Cormac McCarthy stuff, where it's like these, um, you know, these hired guns. There's a westerny element to it. And then to be set in mostly the 60s, you know, kind of looking at how people lived back then. It's absolutely stunning to me that Nick Cutter was not a contemporary of the 60s because you feel like it's so authentic. So obviously, need do I even it's obsession. I'm obsessed. I'm obsessed with this book. So I'm curious what you think mine is. I'm gonna say obsession. This book was an obsession. Yes. Yep. Uh my God. The way that <laughs> my God, sir. Good God, sir. The way that he writes, it's so I I tried to think about how to describe this, and it's like a milkshake through a straw. Mm, I drink your milkshake. Well, yeah. I, <laughs> I mean, his writing is so rich and delicious and sensual in a way. But, you know, just like a milkshake, the best milkshake through a straw, you can't drink it fast. You just you like have to suck it out of. Suck, suck the words off of the page. It's getting weird. I okay, it is. I read this book quite slowly. You know, I'm 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 a typically a pretty fast reader. Scott is a very fast reader, and not like because he's trying to fly through books. He's just somebody that consumes a lot of pages. And this book really, I just it made you slow down. It made me slow down. It made me. It made me. Um, what's the word? It burn. It, <laughs> It made me savor 
every chapter. Yeah, and I do want to dip a french fry in it, just like a good thick milkshake. So, yeah, this was absolutely an obsession for me. Good. This is going to be a reread. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I love I love the setting, I love the characters. I I just I I enjoyed so much of what he put in there. And I'm going to be purchasing multiple copies and if you have a birthday or a holiday coming up and you know me, look under your seat because you're going <laughs> to have a copy of this book. And whereas I think there's a lot of people I wouldn't recommend the troop to because it's so brutal and so extreme. And this is that, but it's um in a slightly different package that I think is going to be accessible to more readers and and not scare them off right away. Well, okay, you talked about accessibility, and and I, I want to jump straight into our appeal score on yeah. this one um, because I, I I'm really tempted to go mass. I, I think but, I know what you mean. I think we're gonna let's do this together because I think we're on the same page. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we're gonna give it a tentative in quotes mass. It's very hard to give a horror book, a true horror book, a mass appeal, especially when you're talking about Nick Cutter, yeah. who is so good at body horror. Oh, my God. It is. It's disgusting. He really is one of the few people who can make me lose my appetite on the page. <laughs> Yes, no, 100%. Which is why it's so weird to say like, oh, yeah, this is a mass appeal book. But it's like, but it is, though, because uh, the characters are so rich and the story so rich. And it's also fun. Like the story and the characters are, even though it's kind of dark, it's fun. There's this, you know, obviously this kind of like getting the band together type of attitude where these three come together to fight this thing they didn't expect it's kind of like a quentin tarantino film meets yeah it's like rob zombie (laughs) it's like mass appeal in a way a quentin tarantino film is yeah actually that's a really good way to put it because if you described the plot of reservoir dogs to somebody you'd think okay that's kind of a that's kind of for a particular type of person and it's not pulp fiction same kind of thing yeah you would think that that would be a very, and there are definitely people who are against. You don't like fiction. it, yeah, but yeah. It, it's such a huge mass hit. This is this is that kind of a story. I mean, even if horror is not really your thing, you got to get behind the three. I keep calling them assassins, but but freelance mercenaries, yeah. hired guns, yeah, yeah, and they're they're so interesting and they're different. And they're not stereotypes at all, but they 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 fall into this this character trope themselves. That's not even a trope. They're, they're so well realized. Yes, but there is a familiarity to their archetypes in a way that's going to make it um, sit well with people because it's going to be very reminiscent for them, and it's an incredibly cinematic feeling book too. You could definitely see this as a film or prep. Preferably um, like a Netflix or Amazon miniseries, a really cinematic, dynamic book. And I'm very tempted to just let's go spoilers go right now so we can just dodge into it. Yeah, I think it's a great idea. This book, if you haven't read it, 
read it. Please read it. If we've piqued your interest at all, take some time to read this book. I really don't think you're going to regret it. And if you do regret it, tell us why and how crazy we are for um, weeping into its pages like we do. All right, everybody, see you in the spoiler section. See you there. Hi, podcast listener. Are you that weirdo in your group of friends who loves horror movies? I sometimes like to see sick, nasty things, and this is kind of a sick, nasty movie. Do you wish you knew other weirdos who could let you know what's worth seeing in theaters and help you find those hidden gems on streaming platforms? No, the trailer should be like, it'll make you feel uneasy. Then you should check out The Bloodlust, because that's what we've been doing since 2014. Every other week, we bring you a new in-depth review of films from all over the wide map of horror. I'm always fond of found footage movies. That's a lot of Fs. Nordic noir. Ooh, I love Mm. it. Ghost jumping out of you does not a horror movie make. (laughs) Highbrow or lowbrow, indie or blockbuster, the bloodlust respects them all. I love me a good epic adventure. We pride ourselves on giving our opinions without being snobs or d-bags about it. I don't like this movie. 100% not but. Yeah, and I hate movies that are over two hours long just on principle. Sometimes we can get a little dark. Mental torture. That's what life is. That's what adult life yeah. is yeah, like. I, yeah, I know. I don't need any more of it. Right. See, that's But it's thing. very cathartic to me. But it's all in good fun. So come join us at thebloodlust.net or wherever you listen to podcasts. And celebrate the best and most misunderstood genre of them all. That's the difference between me and you guys. You guys saw it and you were like, wow, interesting exploration of the human feelings. And I saw it and I'm like, my nervous system is overloaded and I'm going to vomit. Yeah. <laughs> all right, everybody, we're back. Let's get into this. Let's talk about this. Let me try to be a critical um, journalist and not just cry and talk about how much I love this book and how... My phone went off. <laughs> I thought it was on sleep. I'm sorry. It's all right. It was Nixle like, minded too. Yeah, it was a Nixle alert. Just I didn't have any sound. Because oh, I'm profesh. Shut up. <laughs> um, okay, this book. I would really like to talk about the characters, which I think is the heart of this novel. This novel would not be success- as successful as it is without the wonderful characters. Yeah. But we're going to try to move through them at a clip. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll let you set the pace. Okay. So I can't pick a favorite among our three mercenaries. Oh, I can. Well, Okay, you say that, but I don't believe you because the three of them are such a perfect balance that, because here's the thing, I know you're going to say Ebenezer, Oh yeah. but at the same time, you're such a Micah guy. mm. So it's really hard because it's like, there's so much about Micah that is so a Scott character, but there's also the fun stuff about Ebenezer that's very you too. I really like Micah. Uh, I think that he's he's a really complicated individual, and I, I I had a personal vested interest in him being a Korean War vet because uh, yes. my dad was a Korean War vet, and yes. so there was there was some things in there that really got to me. Kind of what men of that specific slice of their era went through and how they came back. Yeah, no, that was really poignant stuff and he has a really weird in a, in a good way a very he has a very complicated uh moral structure yes which and is what makes him a very you character in my mind and you're right and if ebenezer wasn't in this book <laughs> he would he, he's a great main character to the book yes he's our rock but ebenezer is a treasure 
Ebenezer is a treasure. He's a black man from England in this Wild West place. And it's a very fun story how he got to where he is, too. And he comes across very flippant, nihilistic, and devil-may-care kind of rogue. But at the same time, it's like, come on, we all know that's surface stuff. And getting to first know him in the quote-unquote present lets us know that, yeah, you're not all just fun and games, sir. Nick Cutter had a really good grasp on how to introduce these characters. Oh, it's perfect to introduce them at the weird place they are in their lives, contemporarily speaking. I I really like, uh, I guess, 80s Minerva. Mini. I, I love many. I love them all. Now, I would say probably on paper, if I had to vote for one, I would pick Ebenezer for myself, too. I'd pick the Englishman. But I really love Minnie. I love that she's a, a woman driven by revenge. I love that she is a bounty hunter and she's trying to be so cold. But as it repeats over and over in the book, you're no killer, Minnie. Well, at least not then she wasn't. <laughs> she thinks she thinks she's hard. She thinks she's she thinks she's bad and she's she she's, is. She's tough. Yeah. But she she's no killer. She's no She's murderer. not a killer because Ebenezer and Micah have killed people for basically no reason and she has not. <laughs> you know, things change in the 80s, but um <laughs> like, you know. No, and she's <sighs> relatable in the weirdest way for me and really touches my heart maybe more three more than the other two of the three it's interesting to have a character like her who is so so strong and has such a a a rough exterior Mm -hmm. but she also does bring kind of a maternal quality a lot of compassion Yes. Yeah, because she still has like a lot of um stuff from that incredibly weird loss of her brother. Everybody knows um who knows me knows that I love finding out weird ways people have died. Like in Rue Morgue, the coroner's report, I go straight to it every issue because I love hearing that. And it's like, yeah, that's probably some crazy ass way some kid died one time in the sixties is they got eaten by an escaped circus snake. But it's like, and it's funny, but it's not funny. Because it's like horrifying what's happening. And he and he he's really good at digging down on weird deaths like that. Yes. Where he describes the death a couple of times. Yeah. And each time it gets progressively more horrific. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're, by the end, it's being described from the viewpoint of the boy who was eaten by the snake. Yeah. And it's just, oh, God, this is awful. This is this is just the worst. <laughs> um, and what about Ellen too? Um, she's uh she could be such a throwaway character, but I think um Nick worked to make sure that she wasn't because she you know she hired these people because she cares about her sister and her nephew and her family, and she's really has this vent- vested interest in this outcome. She has a lot of feelings. She has a lot of heart. She has a lot of compassion. She clearly sees good stuff in people. She has like a really good radar for you're a good person, you're a piece of garbage. And she's disfigured too by being burned, which I love because, you know, you don't always get that in a romantic heroine. 
she's a complicated character and, and Cutter's given her a really good backstory and motivation. She's a bit of a stand-in. She's a bit of a of a plot driver, but Well, sure. Yeah. But she also again I talked about moral compass earlier. She stands in as, well, this is kind of what a normal person is like, because everyone yeah. in this book is so over the top. Yeah. So no, she is kind of our um our every person uh gaze into this world too. A trope that I love in books and movies is um magic always comes with a price. Uh, wishes come with a price. Uh that's something I love in my fantasy and my horror. And it's very interesting when we meet these characters to know that they all have paid a terrible cost, but the weird thing is is they never verbalized it we don't find till like the very end of the book they never said i want this but this thing can see into your heart's deepest desires and it perverts it which is something i really liked this kind of curse that they have that they didn't ask for but at the same time they did because it was what was in their heart there is a quote very near the beginning of the book that I love. And I'm going to read this passage here. It's not a quote. It's a passage. I'm an idiot. <laughs> so in Ebenezer's thing, as an older man, we're learning this. His deepest desire, which is so fascinating for his character, show me the face of God. So I first read this as I want to read all horror novels, which is when I'm the only one awake in the house by a little light. And that is my favorite way to consume horror past my bedtime. And I read this passage thrice. I know exactly what passage you're going to be pulling out. And I also read it thrice. It makes me want to weep every time I read it. Show me the face of God. And Gardner saw it every time he closed his goddamn eyes. God's face was vile. The first few times, Gardner had suspected trickery. Th the black thing invading his head and twisting his thoughts. But in time, his soul moved against the proposition. He had been granted his wish fairly, and now he had to live with it. God's face was that of an idiot. The moronic, drooling, palsied face of an enormous infant. A face covered in seeping boils and a crawl with insects not to be found anywhere in nature. God's eyes stared with malicious cruelty. And there was the vast power in that gaze. Yes. Although it was witlessly applied, that gaze took aim at anyone, disregarding goodness or worth. It ruined people chaotically, without wisdom or just cause. This was the purest terror Gardner felt each time he shut his eyes, at the fact that the universe was lorded over by an infant of incalculable wrath and directionless evil who had not the slightest sense of right or wrong, guilt or innocence, or the hope of a better life, and all of humanity worshipped that mindless, gibbering thing. It's such a disturbing... <laughs> like, I know, we all need, I, I think we all need to cuddle right now. <laughs> I think we all need a friend! I mean, to it's, be so it's, blatant about it, it's not sugarcoated at all. If this is in fact true and it's not trickery, what a cosmic joke that this thing has twisted. Uh, oh, God, it's horrible. I hope it's not true. I mean, I don't believe my heart of hearts that it's true. <laughs> no. But in, um, you know, everyone knows I'm a little bit of a nihilist, too. And it just serves so well that if you could imagine if you believed that to be absolute fact because you had seen it, how would you live your life? How would you go on? How would you choose to be? There's a lot of authors that tackle the idea of 
of a of an uncaring or unpresent or cruel god <laughs> and play with the idea of just the hopelessness and the yes. meaninglessness of it all yes this is one of the strongest passages i have ever read with that f- emotion and it shows so much of ebenezer's character that he lives his life as the gardener in this white community and he's just the you know oh he's the quiet old gardener and it's like well damn that's not the ebenezer i knew in the 60s who was a wildcat but it's like he has you know his room like covered in crosses and he still fights the good fight and he helps people that need help also the while posing as a Demure Gardner, and it speaks such volumes. And then, of course, I love it too when Micah comes around and he's like, No, yes, f- it. no one lives forever. <laughs> <laughs> I love how they all rallied to help him. At the end of the day, this book is a story of a found family, of a, of a very tribe. complicated, unlikely tribe. You know, I'm a sucker for those. Same for me, too. Families are composed of people that love each other. And the the three of them are just so special together. They're so unlikely, but they find a way to just be good to each other. I really hope that this book finds its way into the hands of a lot of teens, a lot of early teens, maybe even tweens, people that are on that precipice like I used to be in horror, where you want to read this adult content, and sometimes, no matter what you've gone through in your life or what your home life is like, it goes over your head sometimes, but you're like, I know this is important, and I know this is special, Because I feel like this could be, for me as an adult, this is a very shaping horror novel. So I feel like for a lot of kids out there, and yeah, there's swearing, there's violence, there's gross stuff, but you know what? Kids like that stuff. (laughs) But I feel like it it could really set them on a path for the type of horror they want to consume. It's interesting you say that because in my notes, I have very specifically, uh, if I had read this book as a teen, my penchant for reading would have taken a 180 degree turn from the reading I was doing, which was primarily science fiction, to horror. See, there you have it, kids. Your Auntie Sandy and your Uncle Sock are an expert on this stuff, so stick with us. <laughs> Sorry, parents who are like, oh, no, I don't want my child reading that. Well, guess what? They want to read it. Let them read it. As much as the troop was a way to compare stories when it comes to description of horrific uh, physicality, this is a formative book to to set the bar for horror in general. So I want to talk about antagonists in this book a little bit. May I? I'm not stopping you. So Amos Fletcher, that odious, disgusting creature. Did you picture him as little Gideon? Yes, I did. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Only with black hair. And I love little Gideon. I love little Gideon. Yeah, I mean, I knew he had Anybody the black hair. Anybody else but- um, fans out there of uh, Gravity Falls? Gravity Falls, yeah. Rip Gravity Falls. Um, anyway, so Nick says in his afterwards that that character was very inspired by Jim Jones. In fact, he even used some direct Jim Jones phrases when Amos gives his big rallying the troops speech that Jim Jones said when he passed out the poisoned Kool-Aid to his followers, uh, women and children, men, elderly, didn't matter. Um, 
Jim Jones and Jonestown is a big fascination for me. Of all of the cults out there, it's my favorite to study. And I think people who are cult and true crime enthusiasts know what I mean by that. Um, you know, this is a real person that victimized real people, and it's disgusting and horrifying. Um, but it happened, and it's fascinating. And he, Jim Jones, and <laughs> by comparison, Amos Fletcher, are fascinating. You know, what drives them, what happened in their early lives, which made me want to throw up when I read about Amos's childhood. Um, everything about it was vile and made me feel like a dirty soul. <laughs> but, you know, like he says in there, credit where credit's due, because this is something that can really happen, because it did really happen. What I find so impressive about the book is, for me, the, the Jim Jones and the, the, the events of Jonestown obviously is real. It happened. But it always it always has this air of unbelievability to me. I just I can't fathom how that could have happened, how people could have gotten to that point. This book made it believable. Yes. You know, it, it's it's a horror novel in that there's a there's supernatural and and it's not real. It's it's over it's over horror the top. doesn't have to just be supernatural. I know. So you're right. But this book is over the top. The characters are over the top. The yes. settings are are extreme and exaggerated. Yeah. And this was the most believable telling of a cult mass suicide, if you will, although not really a suicide in this case, really yeah. just a mass murder that I've ever read. Um, a hundred percent, because these people didn't quite understand what they were getting into in the same way Jonestown did. Not that that makes it any better. I, I don't want to make it sound like we're comparing or anything, because both are horrific. The point I'm trying to get at is... And one, one is real and one is not. Right. Uh, the point I'm trying to get at is, what does it say that in this book where there are supernatural creatures, there are primordial creatures that are godlike in scope in what they do you know the flute player father all of that that is um so removed from an everyday life that what's really scary is this real human being that was so broken and did horrible things to other people and controlled people that's what's really scary the other stuff was scary but amos fletcher is the type of stuff that keeps me up at night because the supernatural creatures in this story, they're driven by just a, a need. Uh, the main supernatural, the, the father, is driven by just survival, by hunger. Um, you know, his underlings are driven just by their their connection and devotion to father and making sure that father gets what he needs. God, in this story, is just a, a random player. Blithering it's a player. Yes. And Amos... He has real selfish motivations. Yes. And that makes, and what is more evil? Same thing with, um, they talk about Preston and the Preston School for Boys in this. And, and that man, that real evil that was, um, all too human. And it's like, you know, he was a horrible person too. It's kind of like the same thing. Obviously, this is thematic in this novel that what's really scary is what human beings are capable of doing to each other more so than what these supernatural creatures are doing to each other, which is equally horrifying. But there's 
something about, especially at the end of the novel, the bill comes due. You know, Micah knows they've got to go, they've got to face it, and he's going to have to sacrifice himself. And it's like very cut and dry. Like you said, it's like what it's just what these creatures do. It's like how they operate. Yeah, there's not really a morality to the creatures. It's just this is... This This is what we need. This is what they do. What did you think of that ending? I loved it. God, I loved it because it's just ambiguous enough for me that Micah's um, martyrdom, his sacrifice, is not in vain. But, you know, um, something might change in this scenario because the other two, Minnie and Ebony's, are like, we this might is, have to go back and get it. This isn't quite done. So it's kind of like, it's not in vain, Micah, what you did, but it might not be the end, the end. The ending affected me a lot. Oh, same. It was m- so moving in the way good horror is, as we talked about a lot. I mean, I love all kinds of horror. I shouldn't say good horror. But, you know, when it really sticks with you because it touches you on, like, lots of um, levels of your soul and your consciousness, um, that's when horror really sings for me. And this certainly did that. This uh, the, the ending of the book had me in the same uh, headspace that I was when I watched Rosemary's Baby for the first time. Oh, shit. When I when I watched my bad, uh, <laughs> my bad again. Oops, Hereditary, and it's it's funny because this is one of those situations where our don't talk about the book before the episode situations really bit me because I was in a weird headspace and I couldn't tell you, hey, um. I'm having a thing right now. I can't really talk. I can't really talk to you right now because I'm kind of in shock at the moment. Yeah, I'm. See, I keep doing this to you. I'm so sorry. Sorry, not sorry because I feel like it's making you a better person. Well, you know what? I'm becoming more uh, acclimated to it. I'm becoming a little, little uh, like all of us who are fans, a little little desensitized. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I I don't. I don't want to say that it's that it's uh, (laughs) it's an emotion that I look forward to and then i hunt down <laughs> but now that i've had it a few times I, I i recognize it is not uh just uh something in myself being yeah. incapable of horror it's something that i feel like you horror aficionados yeah. chase it's like when you get hurt or something and you're like uh, I feel so alive. <laughs> like, horror has a tendency to do that too and makes you feel very alive in the most extraordinary of ways. And part of why I think it didn't make me in a weird headspace, it did a little bit, but was because Ebenezer and many are not quite closing the book on it. Um, you know, they, they're pretty smart, the two of them. You never know what they're going to be able to figure out. They might be able to, to beat this thing in its own game. And even if they don't, the, the, the way that, that Cutter gives you a lot of really solid closure. I mean, the fact that, that Minnie and Ebenezer are friends now. Yes. Is, is really more important Absolutely. to me. Absolutely. That's the hope. That's the uplifting part of it, especially, you know, after, you know, the incident at Blackrock and they're like, she's like, oh, man, because I'm glad you're not dead. Like, it's just so funny. It's like, oh, come on. Hug it out, you two. (laughs) Sorry, he killed your dad. He was an assassin. 
I want to say, because you you talked earlier about wanting this to be like a a short, like a mini series or a movie. Yes. I want it to be a movie. um, And I want it to be a movie for one scene alone. Uh, Well, in the book, it's split up. But basically, Ebenezer's uh, little escape and experience (laughs) on the outside. Yes. Breaking into the breaking into the gun shop and oh, going to the probably diner. My f- probably my favorite part of the book, really. That is such a fabulous section of the book. It's just like, all right, gear up. And I want to hear uh, "Wrecking Ball" by Miley Cyrus <laughs> <laughs> during that scene. It'd be so perfect. Um, no, I'm glad you agree. No, that was just that whole like Ebenezer's weird little field trip he goes on is just so cinematic and so great. Um, and I love that he gave him a cigar at the end. Just, yes. th- just that classic driving in on, a, on, in this case, a tank with a cigar in his mouth and yeah. guns akimbo. And yeah. Calvary's here. <laughs> so um, Scott and I both really love action. We love action movies. We love action things. Uh, and this is what's going to tie into this in a minute. So for those of you who don't know, Scott is an excellent marksman. And that is uh, a big hobby of his. He I no- wouldn't say excellent. Stop I'm, it. Okay. He's- I'm better than I have any right to be. He's very good at it. And it's a hobby he enjoys as a responsible person who knows how to operate firearms. Anyway, uh, all politics, however you feel aside, he's the ideal candidate for somebody to be a marksman and to know about guns. And he loves the history of guns and he loves learning about guns. And, you know, the action nerd in me liked all that stuff too but i knew scott was gonna really appreciate all this um cool stuff about uh you know these guns from the 60s and everything and and cutter goes into a lot of detail about every firearm so he wants you to know yeah and a lot of the firearms are actually world war ii and korean war era even in the 80s yeah just like wow that's really cool that like you researched that and you wanted it to feel authentic and whenever like in a book somebody or in a movie too whenever somebody like mentions the mark and like make of the gun and everything it's because they want you to know like hey we know what's up like we we're being accurate it's important to the realism of a book to someone who has kind of an understanding of guns that there be realistic descriptions there be if they talk about how if they talk about how many shots someone takes that there's a that they get the number right yeah yeah that you know the way just little details like that really brings the whole thing alive it's the same thing if if you're interested in any hobby or any kind of uh, of thing that's not necessarily broadly known about fishing if you will yeah. or 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 oil painting or whatever it is Throwing in little details like that goes such a long way of making it real. Well, and it's it's just perfect. Like I said, I can't believe that Nick Cutter didn't live in the 60s. I mean, obviously, he had great source material for writing this because everything about it feels so authentic. The places they go, the things they eat and drink, the, the way they speak, it just feels super authentic. And I'm a sucker for the 1960s. It's one of my favorite eras to learn about some of my favorite eras in horror um so that was just even more like home run grand slam nick cutter uh perfect perfection 60s and 80s your two favorite eras absolutely so i guess we (laughs) it's like a joke at this point i guess we have to give this thing a score um i I was gonna give it (laughs) 
Five out of five fathers. Little creepy fathers. Little shriveled fathers. Five out of five. You know, everything's not perfect. Everything has room to critique and to nitpick. But for me, I just really can't find a whole lot of fault with this book. There was, you know, when you look at it, it's a long book. It's close to 500 pages. But to me, there wasn't um, a, a page wasted. If Little Heaven was just the story that took place in the 60s, this book would be a five out of five. Um, adding in the events after those events, everything from the 80s improves it. It's better than perfect. This is, I'm calling it now here in February. This is my book of the year. Well, it's definitely going to be in my top five. This, it's going to be very hard to, to bypass this. It might even be book of the decade. Stop it. This book was okay, you know, d- stupid good. Okay, but you know what? We can't really, we can say it's going to be one of our favorite oh, books ever, but it's so hard because we have so many beloved books. I'm being hyperbolic, 100%. Yes, and I appreciate it. Um, but this is definitely on our list for best books we read this year. And it's unfortunate that we read it so early in the year because it's like, you know, we can't compare everything to it. But it's a highlight. This is this is the part of my notes that I talked that I have written down here about this have this would have made me a horror fan if I had read it as a teen. If I read this book instead of Ender's Game as my <laughs> first novel, I would be a hopeless horror addict. Oh, that's great. Uh, it, basically, all of this is to give myself an excuse to give this six out of five fathers. It is. I am breaking our scoring system for this because I just I I, I have no words. I, I have, have words. no words. I have words, but I have no words. Uh, okay, I love it how it would have made you a hopeless horror fan because now you're a you're a hopeful horror fan. This makes me <laughs> want to read more. Uh, I I read I read another book that we're reviewing soon that is in a different genre, yes. and I actually ended up I ended up enjoying it. I won't go any more detail than that. I don't yeah. even know if Sandra knows what book I'm talking about yet. Uh, but it was very hard for me to start that book because I just wanted to drown myself in horror. Yeah, it, this is a and book, that's that's very new for me. This is a book hangover inducing book for sure in the best way possible, and sometimes the best way to beat a book hangover we should talk about this in another episode sometimes is to read something super different than your last book another one that i find is a good palate cleanser is a thriller like a true you know there's nothing um magical or supernatural in it you know like a karen slaughter or um you know a ruth way or something like that but yeah this was um you're gonna need a good hangover cure yeah you need a palate cleanser after this one Thank you guys so much for joining us. Um, I hope we weren't too annoying as we gush and fangirled and boyed over this absolutely incredible novel. And I'm sure if you've listened thus far, I'm sure you have a lot of the same feelings that we do. So signing off, this is Sandra. This is Scott. Please keep reading past your bedtime. Bedtime.